Greetings, travelers, and welcome to the Geronimo Draws Podcast. I'm Robert Geronimo, creator of the Blood Rum comic series, and in this episode, I'll be discussing my top five paintings by the neoclassical artist Jacques-Louis David. Also, be sure to rate, subscribe, and share, as it does help the channel grow. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Greetings, travelers, and welcome to Geronimo Draws. Hope everybody's doing well. I wanted to do a little art history discussion, and I wanted to talk about one of my favorite artists uh, from the neoclassical uh, period, and that artist is Jacques-Louis David. Now, I'm going to talk about my top five paintings by David, and that's how you say the name, right? Because a lot of students, they pronounce it David, but it's Jacques-Louis David. <laughs> it's fun to say when you pronounce it that way. But before we get into his artwork, we have to talk about what came before, right? It's essential because that's the thing about art history is that to understand a piece, you have to understand what led to the creation of this work. And I find his work so incredibly epic. <laughs> you know, this is such an epic quality to these figures, you know, to the stature of the figures here. I love this stuff. And this is the stuff that inspires uh, Blood Realm, my comic series. So yeah, I'm just excited to share more of this stuff with you. Now, the pieces that we'll be discussing today, we'll be talking about first off, Fragonard's The Swing, because we need to know what led to uh, David coming into the art scene. And then we need to talk about uh, my favorites, which are Oath of the Eratii, this is all by David, The Death of Socrates, The Intervention by the Sabine Women, and then Napoleon Crossing the Alps. This is all in chronological order, by the way. And then we'll be talking about another portrait of Napoleon as emperor by this artist, Ang. We're just going to compare the David portrait to that portrait because it's totally different. And then we'll close with David's portrait of Napoleon in his study. So feel free to look up the images, maybe on your phone or on the computer. I'll list them in the description of the episode regardless. So first up is Fragonard's The Swing. <laughs> and this is the Rococo period. This is not neoclassicism. This is what came before David. Everything is leading up to the French Revolution. You have the King Louis who've been reigning for decades, and they are allowing the nobility to grow and grow more and more in power, right, to completely take advantage of the people. And prior to the French Revolution, what people don't realize is that people were literally starving in the streets. You know, we say things in today's time, you know, like we say words, but we don't really know what they mean. We say it, oh, they were, they, oh I'm starving. You know, no, these people were literally starving and dying in the streets of Paris. So meanwhile, in Versailles, you have King Louis Fourteenth, and of course, 15th, 16th, and they're living like kings, literally, but beyond kings, like gods, right? And their palace was miles and miles away from what was going on with the starving people. I mean, Marie Antoinette, who was King Louis XVI's wife, she wanted to play peasant Right, think about that during her free time. 
So she had a little kind of cottage made up that wasn't too far from Versailles. And she would play peasant and she would have her servants. She would dress very quaintly, you know. And meanwhile, the people would by the gates who were actually living peasant life, starving and crying out for food. So this is the environment that is that really propels David's artwork because it's a reaction to all that, the horrible uh, living conditions. But the artwork that is popular right prior to David is Fragonard. And what we see here, right? And again, we have to talk about what came before to really appreciate David is just the, the upper class just living it up, right? Just uh, frivolous love, sexuality, sensuality in this just fantasy-like landscape, right? It's very naughty in a way, right? We have this, this young nobleman who is looking up the dress of this woman as she's swinging on this big, beautiful swing. You know, the, her, her, her foot is just flying into the air, right? With the little shoe there. And again, like this is, this is just speaking to the upper class in every way, right? It's so richly drawn, the colors, the dress, right? Just frivolous, rich life. And again, the landscape, right? This is it's a steamy landscape, right? It's not quite, you know, the, a reality, this type of landscape. This is a manicured world that, that really suits and fits uh, the wealthy. So this is the artwork that was popular prior to David's work, right? This is a, a period we call Rococo uh, period. So, and again, that's not to say that Fragonard is not skilled. Let me just make that clear. I mean, this is still a beautifully drawn image. I mean, the, the, the way he, he draws nature and the, the lush, I mean, if we scan in, right, if we zoom in rather to the dress of the girl, it is remarkable. We feel the movement. We feel the motion of the swing, you know, that are inspired by artists like Caravaggio in terms of the maximum point of action. It's just the subject matter, right? It's all about love and you know, happy, happy days for nobility and just being naughty and all this downtime that we have, these sexual uh, naughty escapades. And meanwhile, of course, people are starving in the street. So that's going to bring me right away to the first piece that is my favorite, right, of David. And that is the Oath of the Horatii. Oh, man. <laughs> and right, what a contrast. If we juxtapose the two together, right, we look at Fragonard, right, the Rococo period, and now we have the Oath of the Horatii, right? This is David. And this painting essentially is like a rallying call, a call to arms that people, we need to start a revolution. Uh, we cannot continue living like this. We need to get the people excited and understand that we need to fight and die for the cause, which is, right, the, the revolution. But the story here is that what he chooses, and why I love this painting so much, is that he chooses a piece of Roman history, right? He's taking Roman history, and he's kind of just bending it and making it really connect to the people of France during this time. Because what we have here, we have Rome, who is at war with another city-state called Alba. And instead of basically unleashing a brutal war against each other, what 
Rome and Alba agree to do is say, hey, let's pick three warriors and three of your warriors, and they will battle it out. And whoever wins, that person will take over that city-state. So the Romans choose the Horatii, who we see here, and Alba chooses the Curi, right? And we have the three brothers swearing an oath, right? They have their, their hands up to the three swords that they will use in battle, right? So they're, they are rigid, right? Look at their bodies. They're stern. They're strong. They're, they're almost like ancient Greek sculpture, but painted. Right? If, we, if we look back at like ancient Greek type sculpture, look at their bodies, like their musculature, very strong. And the, I love this scene right here with the hand. You see the hand grasping his brother's waist. They are bound together in this cause. It's extremely powerful, right? And the father of the three brothers, he's holding up his swords, right? He's holding, holding up these swords. And they are making this oath to die for Rome to die for the cause. So you see how that's connecting, right, to the, to the theme here that, that David needs for the people and to rally the people to fight for the French Revolution. And if you go to the right here, we see three women, right? And now David is, is doing something very interesting with the women here because obviously they are much more, I would say, uh, well, they're not as rigid, not as stern. They're they're curvy, right? They're slumped. Uh, they're driven by emotion. And David is saying that the men cannot be concerned with their emotions in this moment. Because if they are, they will not die for the cause. They will not die for the revolution. So the women are fueled by emotion in this scene. But what's sad is that the reason being is that you have a woman who is a curi here, and she's married to one of the Horatii. So no matter what's going to happen, no matter the outcome of this battle, someone will lose someone. She's either going to lose her brother, or she's either going to lose her husband. So at the end of the day, there will be casualties. There will be loss. It's so powerful, right? So incredibly powerful. And that's what David is trying to show here to the French people that, folks, there's going to be death. At the end of the day, there's going to be loss and there's going to be tragedy. But, but the most important thing is that we die for the cause. Civic duty above all. It's powerful. It's incredibly powerful considering, you know, what's going on during this time. They're so desperate. But what I love, too, about this piece is that the architecture also mirrors the bodies of the men. Right? When we look at the bodies of the men next to the Doric columns, Doric was the most bare, austere type of uh, columns. It's considered the most masculine. There aren't any intricate designs on the columns themselves, right? or the capitals above, the capitals of the, the piece above uh, the column. Doric, again, is bare, and it's considered masculine and strong. And that's what David is putting here, right? is that the entire atmosphere here is about duty, is about male strength, right? Because that's what's needed 
to overcome emotion in this regard to fight for the cause. Again, I can't stress that enough. People are starving in the streets, dying. And you can never anticipate what people will do when they're hungry. Because that's what leads to revolution. You know, they were absolutely inspired by the American Revolution because American Revolution was inspired by a lot of the French philosophies about uh, you know the Enlightenment and against the monarchy. But George Washington and the founding fathers really put those words <laughs> to action. And here the French were like, my God, they went and did it. And they did do it. But the main thing, now that did inspire them, but the main thing that fueled them was starvation. And this piece was a huge hit at the Salon. The Salon was this big gallery event that would happen once or twice a year. And this was the showstopper. They actually had to keep the gallery open longer than its usual hours because the line was out the door. Everyone wanted to come see this. And you have to think about that for a moment, right? This is a time before, obviously, cell phones and before radio and TV. This was big for entertainment here. This is how you, you motivated people through art, you know, which is a whole other topic, right? When you start to think about AI art right now, right? Because this is the hand of an artist. And it's powerful because he's taking the influence from, you know, of, of ancient Greek and Roman art just done with that frivolous nonsense that was from the Rococo period. And now we have this strong, powerful, uh, new uh, classicism that's taking place here. And it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's one of my favorite paintings because it's just so inspiring. You know, and again, of course, it is to inspire the people to fight for the revolution. But the story, even the story alone, that history of, of Rome and Alba is, is so fascinating. Again. Just a complete, total wealth of inspiration. So the next one, right? And that's, you're going to notice a theme with David's work. And that's this death for civic duty, right? Death for an honorable purpose, an honorable death in a way. Next painting we have is The Death of Socrates. And it's a similar theme, of course. So I'm not going to spend as much time on this, on this piece, but I do love this piece because. I just love the style of David. There's such incredible weight to his figures. There's a great sense of drama and atmosphere. And here we're looking at the death of the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates. And now this is just two years before the outbreak of the French Revolution. I believe Oath of Horatia was about four years before. So we're getting closer and closer to that big revolution, the big moment. And we see this central figure here who is Socrates, surrounded by his family and his followers. And he's old, but he's noble, right? He looks very wise. And what's happening here is that he's also reaching for a cup of poison, which is a cup of hemlock. Because in 399 BC, Socrates was put on trial for corrupting the youth of Athens. Essentially, he inspired them to disrespect authority and for disrespecting and rejecting the gods of Athens. So that was a big no-no. <laughs> so he's eventually found guilty, and he's offered a choice. He could either renounce his beliefs, or he could die by his own hand. And Socrates chooses death, right? 
chooses death. And again, you can see how this was inspiring to the people of France during this time. Because we're witnessing the moment just before he accepts this cup of poison, of death, right? This cup of death. And we see his face is just unwavering, right? He's pointing up, upward, right? Up to the heavens. Because he's explaining to his followers at, at that moment, you know, about the immortality of the soul, right? The unseen. It's, so it's, he, again, this, this honorable death and accepting death, just as the Horatii brothers are doing, right? They're all accepting death here. And while all these people are mourning here, we have all of these figures mourning. They just can't grasp that their leader, their master is going to die. Uh, moments after this. Now, we could even see his shackle here if you look at it because he's imprisoned on the floor and it snakes up, up onto the bed. He is just this rock, right? He's, it's almost like he's standing and sitting at the same time, that finger pointing upward. And when you look at his face compared to the others, there's this look of determination. He's not afraid. He's ready. He knows where he's going. He has this this strong look of assurance, right, on his face. It's like, fear not. And this painting, it exists essentially for the people of, of France, right, in two periods, because you have the 399 BC story here, the history of, of Socrates. And then you could see how this is rousing the political movement that would lead toward the, the French Revolution. And this idea of the philosopher, right, this Greek philosopher willing to die for his beliefs. This was very enticing in this era, right? When, when the government of France with King Louis is, is so incredibly corrupt and there's, there's this desperate need for change. And again, the figures, I just love the way David paints. His figures are strong. I mean, <laughs> Socrates is not skipping leg day here, folks. <laughs> I think it's pretty evident, right? He is not skipping leg day. He is strong. You can see his veins, too. What is cool, too, to know about David is that he did go to Italy to study. He spent time studying uh, the masters of, of Michelangelo, right? And uh, Caravaggio, of course, but uh, mostly the ruins of ancient Greece and Rome. And you could just see it. You can see it. It's like he, he brought that stature that we see in those sculptures, right? The, the heroicism, right? And he brings that to paint in terms of the anatomy and the structure and the, just that presence that Greek and Roman sculpture has. And he brings that to the canvas. I absolutely love it. I also love the choice of colors, too. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And again, the faces. Love these figures here who are just in total like disbelief. You can see the inspiration too. One day, I, maybe I'll do uh, a Leonardo da Vinci uh, episode because he was the one to really bring the psychological you know, of, of figures and, and characters to paint, you know, to, to how they would react. And here we're seeing that influence, right? We're seeing all these different emotions. It runs the gamut. You have some in complete hysteria. This one's like pulling his hair here. This one can't even look. He's hiding his face, right? Even the soldier here, I love this. Even the soldier who's giving him 
the the poison. I assume this is a soldier. I don't think a follower would give him the, the, the poison. Can't even look as he does it because he knows he's handing him his death. But Socrates accepts it willingly. And this is at the Metropolitan Museum. I've seen this many times. Every time I see it, it's like I always have to just stop and look at it. It's just such a powerful, powerful image. So cool. Okay. Uh, the next one. Let's see? Ah, here we go. This is the intervention of the Sabine women. Now, this one's so fascinating, too, because, I mean, they're all fascinating. But this one's even more interesting because this is now after the French Revolution. Okay, so uh, they've killed King Louis. So this is a later David. King Louis XVI is executed. And what happens is, is that things don't exactly go exactly as they, they would hope, right? Because now you have all these different radical revolutionary groups who are just slaughtering each other. They all want power. They kill the monarch, and now you have this brutal, brutal group, which David was a part of, called the Jacobins. And then you have royalists. And if you could look it up, the list of these radical revolutionary groups goes on and on. There were tons, all these factions, and they were killing each other, murdering each other. And this is also after the famous uh, Reign of Terror period where 50,000 uh, French uh, citizens were killed in the span of, of, I believe, like six months. Think about that. You equate that to the, the amount of, of people killed during the Vietnam War, and that was over a course of 10 years, and it was equal to that, just about. And this is in six months. I mean, that guillotine was going all night. So anyone, anyone that they even suspected of being loyal to King Louis, you were killed. So now what's interesting about this piece is that you have those women, right? It's not the same women from the Oath of the Horatii, but you have these women now playing a different role in this piece. So what he does again, which I love about his paintings, is he takes a period of, or history, and a, a story of history from Roman history, and here we have Romulus, and then we have uh, the king of the, the Sabine. When Rome was starting, it didn't have any women. It just had all these warriors. So Romulus and his men went in there, and they just decimated uh, the Sabine people, and they took all of their women. And what happens here is that it takes time, right? Because now the king of, of the Sabine people, he gathers his army, and now he wants to take the women back. But what happens is, is that now those women have married these Roman men and now gave birth to their children. So all of these people are essentially now connected and related. <laughs> and the king of the of the Sabines, he's, he's on the left there, and Romulus is on the right. And we know it's Romulus because he's got the, the wolf, the she-wolf, and she's giving her milk to his brother Remus, and there he is young as well. And there's Roma, obviously, right on the, right on the shield there. And everyone, all my students all the time go, why are they nude? <laughs> it's because he's echoing and calling back to the heroic nudes 
of ancient Greece, right? It was that strength of, 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 the, of the nude figure, the nude sculpture. And you have the daughter of the king, Priscilla, right here in white. And she comes in right in the middle of this battle. You see all these people killing each other. But the women rush through in the middle, almost to say, stop. Stop the bloodshed. And they literally place the children down on the floor. They're presenting the children because these are the children of Rome and also the grandchildren and the children or nephews and nieces of the Sabine people. And basically, this is David calling all of these different factions who are now trying to vie for power of France to stop. Stop the violence. Stop killing each other. And I love this. It's so powerful because she's there in white. and She looks very strong, right? Huge contrast to the, the way the women are depicted in Oath of Horatio, right? Now the emotion or the connection to family is the thing that's going to save them. And David spent time in prison uh, for a bit because of his of his association with the Jacobins, who were just really radical and brutal. They were a ruthless revolutionary group. And some of these soldiers get the hint, right? Like this guy here with the horse, he's turning his horse back. He's realizing we can't be fighting anymore after this poor guy was trampled right underneath that horse. This guy puts his sword back in his scabbard. He illustrates the horses as well. Oh, but I'm sorry. What I was saying was that David spent time in prison and and we believe that he had time to reflect while he was in prison. I know he was kind of estranged from his wife, but they did communicate while he was in prison, supposedly. But again, the women are crucial here and the children. It's like, think of the children, essentially. And how he captures the chaos. Then you have the city of Rome in the background. You could see the huge, massive scale war that's taking place. Sabine, they want, they want revenge for... for Rome, Romulus taking all the women. It's absolutely epic. And again, his colors, my God, his colors are just so explosive. But there's control, you know, there's remarkable to control to his artwork. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's amazing, right? Because you can get all this chaos, but then he knows how to guide the eye right here, right to the center there. To Hercilia. And what's wild too, if you look at this, I always took note of this, is that her legs are spread, right? So it's like the womb is 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 the link here. And the kids, it's I, I feel like it's it's not an accident that the children, the babes are are placed underneath her there. Right. Like they come from the womb. And you can see the women just storming the center of this massive battle, trying to stop the chaos, stop the bloodshed. So, the next piece is Napoleon Crossing the Alps, also uh, by David. Ironically, this was commissioned by the king, I believe, of, of Spain when he found out that Napoleon would be ruling France. And now there's so much chaos that they turn to one man to basically unite them. <laughs> and they go and they turn to Napoleon Bonaparte. And of course, he accepts. So he brings law, he brings his order, and he 
essentially puts down a lot of <laughs> a lot of the rebellion by all these radical groups because i mean he had the men the army on his side he was already well known as uh, extremely well known as a great general and strategist and this piece by david is is essentially in a way a propaganda piece <laughs> as you know as certain art is but it's amazing right because there are there's so many callbacks here that people don't realize well first off we have napoleon here riding his horse up this this treacherous route right i believe at this time he's trying to get into italy and he just looks calm collected right he has that gold coat he has this horse that is so huge, right? How is he controlling that horse? It's because he's that good. Napoleon has complete control over his nation. You can almost argue that the horse represents France, right? And he's pointing forward. He's pointing upward. I will lead the nation forward. I will lead the nation to success, to progress. And you have the people there. I'll also lead the men to war. Right? You have his men in the background. They're making their way up the Alps, up the mountains there. And he seems completely unfazed by the weather, by the route, by war, right? He's made for this. He's made to be a leader. We also see his cloak, right? We see sword i mean how david is so incredible how he captures the texture captures that texture and the hair of the horse right the mane of the horse and you see the horse is terrified the horse is completely terrified uh by this by taking this route and probably the cold and the weather and all of it but no you got napoleon with his windswept hair there <laughs> you gotta admit he looks cool and he's just looking straight at you, dead in the eyes, saying, this doesn't faze me. I'm ready. I can re I'm ready for anything. I will take this nation forward no matter what. If you zoom in, you can see that there are two names beneath Bonaparte. That's Hannibal, and then there's a reference to Charlemagne. Hannibal was the great uh, general from Carthage. And Charlemagne was the famous Holy Roman Emperor. He was a very well-respected Charlemagne. But what's funny is that whose name is the biggest on those rocks on the bottom left? Bonaparte. <laughs> no matter what, Bonaparte. He'll be better than all of them. Right? It's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. And what I love about this too is that him being on the horse is no accident because it's totally referencing a equestrian sculpture from ancient Rome. Because it really originated from ancient Rome, right? The big giant bronze uh, sculpture of, I believe it's Marcus Aurelius on the horse. A lot of it has been destroyed, uh, equestrian sculpture from that period, but it really originated in Rome. And it's Marcus Aurelius, basically similar pose, except he, he's pointing forward. The horse isn't quite going up as much but the horse looks a little unruly but he's handling it you know he has that just like napoleon does that left hand is controlling the horse controlling the beast it's all intentional but 
what's even cooler is if we go even further back and we think about the importance of the symbol of the leader on the horse, it all originates from Alexander the Great. Because Alexander and his horse, the, the stories were legendary. He loved his horse so much that he named a city after the horse, Bucephala. That's how much he loved this horse. This horse stayed with him and fought with him in all of his famous battles. Eventually, I believe, it died near the end when they got to Persia, I believe, near the end of the, when it, after it took the Persian Empire. I don't know if it died there or if it died uh, when he went toward India. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. But it went the distance <laughs> with Alexander, and he adored his horse. And again, there's myths and legends. When you look up the story of Alexander and, and Bucephala, it's incredible. And again, a wealth of inspiration for writing and storytelling. But after Alexander, right, because the Romans loved Alexander, everyone needed their horse. You got to have your horse. <laughs> Every leader needs their horse. You have to name the horse. I forgot the name of Napoleon's horse. It starts with an M. Is it Marengo? I think it's Marengo. <laughs> it's been a while uh, since I... since I Marengo. It is Marengo. I have that in my notes. Oh, I was looking at my, my class notes. Oh, wow, that's funny. But yeah, you know, he sees himself now. Napoleon sees himself as this new inheritor of the Greco-Roman tradition. And he's, in his eyes, he's going to, to exceed them in every way. And, and essentially, you know, he does become ruler. He becomes emperor. He becomes the emperor of France. Now, obviously, he's a very complicated figure because he gets a little obsessed with conquering, <laughs> to say the least. He gets a little obsessed. Uh, but he does do some good things for France's way of life. But yeah, you could look up a lot of his accomplishments as well. Very, very important. And obviously, though, it's complicated because he he brought a lot of death and destruction as well, uh, particularly uh, to Spain, especially to Spain. What's really fascinating, I'd love to do an episode on Goya. And if I ever did an episode on my top five paintings by uh, by Goya, he shows the opposite effect. So here we see. Napoleon doing his thing, being the leader, the heroic leader. But then we see how that looks in the eyes of the Spaniards who were being slaughtered by Napoleon's men. So it's this, this very interesting, disturbing contrast between the conqueror and the conquered. But I digress. Uh, David was Napoleon's uh, court painter as well. Napoleon loved his work, absolutely loved it. I want to share one other painting with you real quick because it's, it's like this perfect in-between because we see that powerful image, right, of, of Napoleon on the horse. Right? By the way, real quick, uh, since, <laughs> since I, I've been doing this and prepping for all this stuff, uh, I, I've been playing Risk like crazy. <laughs> it's such a hard game. I love it. I love it. There's so much strategy to that game and no game is the same. Oh my goodness, what a great, great game. You feel like a general, but you, could, you know what's amazing is that, and I, I'm just going to, little tangent here for a minute, because I'm just I'm so, I'm like reading up strategies on the game. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. You know, it's so hard to control yourself because you start to 
acquire this territory. But it's so easy to lose it if, if, you, don't, if you don't just say, all right, I got to stop. I have to stop here because I'm, I'm spreading myself too thin because I'm going to get attacked you know, in these other territories. Yeah, I may hold them for about two, three turns, but after that, you know, you're, you're done. And I kept thinking about Napoleon, right, when he was obsessed with going north, going to Russia, and he was spreading his forces too thin. And at one point, do you say, I need to stop? I, I, this is too, or do you just say, well, I've already committed. I need to see this through to the very end. Do you get that obsessed with it? So risk kind of brings out the inner general, <laughs> the inner general in all of us, I have to say. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I recommend it uh, for all of you who, if you haven't played it, it's very easy. You know, it's just first game, you know, it's, it's just getting the swing of things. But then after that, after that, you'll be wanting to play more. It's such a great game. So uh, let's see. Okay. Oh, I wanted to show you this portrait of Emperor Napoleon by the artist Ang. I-N-G-E-S. And it's so funny to see the total contrast, the complete contrast. Look at the difference here. <laughs> Look at the difference here. So first we saw David, right, painting Napoleon on crossing the Alps as a great leader, right? And now, uh, what happened? <laughs> uh, gone are the, the vestments of the general, right? No more horse. He's, it looks like he has the scepter of, of Charlemagne. He's on this lavish throne. And in fact, he, he has this throne that looks like a mandorla or a halo. So he's essentially saying he's like a living god. And this actually ties in well with my God Kings episode that I had with Tyler, uh, if you haven't listened to that. And he also has gold laurel leaves on his head, right? Just like the emperors of Rome would have. But these are gold. And he's standing there. He looks, it, it looks terrifying in a way. But you could tell this guy had a huge ego. Now, I just want to reiterate, this is not a David painting, but it's a great segue for the, the next piece that I really enjoy, which is totally different from the others. I just find it very fascinating. But he has this lavish outfit, you know. So imagine you have the King Louis that you can't stand who's dressing themselves in all these King Louis and these, these lavish outfits. And now here you have this. And the halo is like he's a living god. He is the church. He is everything. He is ruler supreme. And the people must have been like, what the hell happened? <laughs> what is this? Oh, my God. And also, I mentioned this also as well in, in my, the previous episode I had with Tyler. Uh, you know, Napoleon crowned himself. The Pope is supposed to crown you. And Napoleon, you know, which is so Napoleon, he just snatched that crown right out of the Pope's hand and crowned himself. <laughs> Which is awesome at the same time, but also, you know, terrifying. <laughs> but here, uh, by Ang, uh, it's a powerful, powerful portrait. But it's really interesting to see how Napoleon fancied himself, right? And you could tell this did not go well with the people of France. 
which leads me to uh, the next piece. And if you guys enjoy this, please let me know. I would love to do more of these, but I will only do them if you guys would like more of them. So please let me know if, if this is a topic and a, a little series that you'd like me to do once in a while, because of course, I love this stuff. I, this is my day job. So I, I would be more than happy to continue with this, but truly only if you guys want it. You know, so please, you're not going to hurt my feelings because I talk about this. I talk about this stuff uh, every day, basically at work. So it's not a big deal. But I'd, I'd be happy to share this with you guys because, essentially, you guys, most of you, well, I like to think all of you are my readers. You know, and would probably like to hear what inspires me to create the story, uh, Blood Realm. So, so yeah. And now for our final painting, we have Napoleon in his study by David. So now. This one is so different. It's so different, but I can't help but love it. And that's this one. Now you're thinking, Rob, why would you pick this one? Well, look at the look at the way he's portrayed now. This is Napoleon, right? And here he's in his study. And you could tell he went a little too far in his earlier portrayals when those were all uh, held at the salon, right? And they were hanging there. People must have been like, what did we let loose here? We already had King Louis, and now this guy is obsessed with conquering the world. Right? Well, after that portrait by Aang, right? Of course, the one with Napoleon crossing the Alps. We have this. And this is such a, just a massive change. A huge shift in the portrayal of Napoleon. And again. Napoleon understood the, the power of imagery, the power of art, right? Um, there's other paintings that are by one artist named Gross, and Napoleon is literally with these, his men, right, who are, who are plague-stricken in, uh, in Jaffa when he was taking the East. And he's, he's touching the men, and all the men are like, don't touch them, you know? But he's touching them anyway, as if he's like Jesus, like he's going to heal them. It's like, what is he going to do, you know? But it's to show like, oh, look, I did this, which he probably didn't. He probably didn't even go near them, you know what I mean? But he knew the power of that. So if he had art commissioned like that, people would believe it. So very much with that mentality, right? Just like the Romans had. It was like, wow, if I do this art, people will believe it, right? So here he's in his study, and gone are those lavish vestments, right? The white powder or whatever he had on his face. Now he looks like a, a normal human being. He still has his outfit, right? The vestments, the, the, the general emperor uniform here. So the uniform is crucial. But what do we see here? Well, the candle is burning, so it's nighttime. And we have all these papers. It's almost as if we just walked into his study and said, oh, excuse me, Emperor Napoleon, may I just have a picture for, you know, whatever magazine, you know? Oh, we oui, oui, them all. <laughs> and he just turned around and we took a snapshot because he's working so hard in his study for the people. He's working so hard for you that look at the clock. It is the wee hours of the, of the night. He's working all night. He has his papers out. The sword is away. The sword and the scabbard, are, that's away on the chair. No, 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 no. I'm not on the battlefield now. My battlefield is working here in my study for the people. 
And he has this, obviously has this confidence, but there's almost, there's a sincerity in his portrayal, right? He has his hand there in, in his, in his uh, vest there, right? Right in his uniform. It's a much more subdued, right? Obviously, needless to say, portrayal of Napoleon. And the candles, right? They're burning. You have some that went out. The wax getting smaller and smaller because he's up all night working for you, working for the people. Now, of course, is it possible? Maybe he was at some point. Maybe. I don't know. But it, I don't believe that this is an accident. <laughs> he knew what he was doing with art, and he knew that the people were getting frustrated with him, especially with all of his conquerors. So now you have him. Look, even the papers are on the floor. He's just a mess the whole night. I'm working hard, working on reforms. I'm reading your letters. I'm doing everything that I need to do to be a great emperor for you, a great leader for you. Because people had seen enough of his nonsense. But it's a very powerful portrait. And again, not as heroic, right? But it's heroic in another way. Right? It's a different battlefield, as I mentioned. But the power of the portrait, the power of imagery, right? It's, it's fascinating to see the evolution, not only in, in the portrayals of Napoleon through the eyes of David, uh, he also illustrated the, the coronation of Napoleon as well, which I didn't show here, but I, I recommend you, you, you check it out. It's a beautiful painting, and it's when he's about to uh, crown his queen, uh, his wife, Napoleon, rather. But regardless, it's also interesting to see the evolution of Jacques-Louis David and his art and how he used art to channel history, to relate to the people. and. Also, how he became a court painter for Napoleon. Fascinating history. And, you know, the history of France is just incredible uh, to begin with. But I personally just love these heroic scenes of, of the heroic death, right? Especially with the Horatii and, of course, with Socrates. And, again, that, that scene with the intervention of the Sabine women is so powerful with Romulus and the king of the, the Sabine people there. Just beautiful imagery. So also, guys, if you are new, check out the links in the description so you can check out my comic, Blood Realm. Um, it is a dark fantasy comic series inspired by history, um, my love for history, and my own twisted dark fantasy world. Um, the new issue is coming out next year, and so far I couldn't be more proud of it. I'm so excited to share this story with you. It, it has all of the stuff that I love from history. The Tales of the Epics. You know, this is the origin for those of you familiar with Chiron Morvell from my series. We're getting that whole epic origin story. I have it all laid out. And uh, I mean, if, if you guys aren't moved, I didn't do my job. <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. I feel like you guys would, I believe you guys are going to love it. It just enriches a lot of the stuff that came before in the series. And I just can't wait. I can't wait. So, I'm going to go work on the last three pages. That's all I have left. I just have to draw three more pages of the latest issue, and that's it. So, again, thank you, every everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and take care, and I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.